Well, we are looking at the hidden figures of Advent, these women that are included in Matthew's genealogy. So if you turn to the first couple of chapters of Matthew, he starts the story of Christmas as we know it a little differently. He starts with the genealogy of Jesus. And included in this genealogy are five particular women, five mothers that are included, which is very unusual to even have women's name in the genealogies. And so we've been looking at these notable mothers in the line of Jesus and discovering that they teach us a lot about the gospel. They're there for a purpose. And they teach us a lot about the message of Jesus and the purpose of why he came. And so we've been working through kind of one by one as we go through these stories. Now, the thing that they all seem to have in common is this, scandal. <laughs> They're scandalous stories in so many different ways. These are not Hallmark movies. Nothing against Hallmark. And I promised to Christine that I'll watch one Hallmark movie with her every Christmas time. I've done my duty for this year. So now we can move on to Die Hard. So, <clears throat> these are not good Hallmark movies. Uh, they're actually really disturbing as we get into them. And we begin to scratch our head and wonder why. Why are they included? within this. Because I think at Christmas time especially, we want everything to be neat and tidy and clean, and we want to be smiling and happy. But the reality is under the surface in so many of our lives, there's a lot of mess going on. And so I'm so thankful that Matthew included these stories within the Christmas story, that these are stories of brokenness. These are stories of sin and injustice. These are stories that are messy, much like our own lives. And so as we go through these stories, we see something of ourselves uh, within the narrative. We find ourselves in the story. So let's recap quickly before I read today's story with great trepidation. So first of all, Tamar. And we learned from the story of Tamar that God's grace breaks through our darkness and brings hope. And then we looked at Rahab always and forever known as the prostitute Rahab. Imagine having that name attached uh, to your name or that description attached. But we learned from Rahab, thanks to Linda Ferguson, that peace comes as God mends our brokenness and makes us whole. And then we looked at Ruth, uh, probably the, the nicest story of them all, and the one we like to read the most. I would like to read it again today, actually. Uh, but through Ruth, we find that Though sorrow may last for the night, joy comes in the morning. So we're learning all these truths of Christmas through these stories of brokenness. And today, 
we're going to look at Bathsheba. And you know what? It's kind of unfortunate that today we're lighting the candle of love because what I'm about to read is not a love story. <laughs> it's quite the opposite. It's actually disturbing. And uh, by the end of it, I hope you feel something of the brokenness that is in and present in this story as we go through it together. But there's something strange that I have to point out. If you're to read Matthew's genealogy, all of these women are named. That's important. When you use someone's name, you give dignity and honor and place and identity to a person. Names are so important. All of the women are named except for Bathsheba. She is remembered not by her name, but she is remembered as Uriah's wife. So just as often we talk about Rahab as the prostitute, whenever we talk about Bathsheba and whenever she's spoken of, it's often referred to as the wife of Uriah. And when I first heard that, I, I thought, why is that? It seems so, so disrespectful. After all she went through, after all of her injustice that she faced, why isn't she named at least? But she's referred to as Uriah's wife. So I want that to be in your mind as a question as we go through this story together, and maybe we'll discover the answer by the end. If I forget to tell you the answer, ask Samuel. <laughs> he knows. So we're going to read together, and we're going to read from 2 Samuel chapter 11. And I'm going to read just the first 13 verses, but I encourage you to go home and read the rest of the story and the other places that um, uh, Bathsheba is mentioned in the Bible, uh, because the rest of the story actually becomes more encouraging than what I'm about to read right now. Okay, 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. In the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. They destroyed the Ammonite army and lay siege to the city of Rabbah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem, lazing on his couch and let others fight the war for him. It doesn't say that, but that's, that's kind of the inference, isn't it? Is that he should be out in battle, but he's letting, letting others fight his battles for him. Verse two, late one afternoon after his midday rest, do you despise David already? I hope so. I think that's the intent. David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of the palace. And as he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual be beauty, sorry, taking a bath. He sent someone to find out who she was and was told she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. And when she came to the palace, he slept with her. She had just completed the purification rites after having her menstrual period. Then she returned home. Later, when Bathsheba discovered that she was pregnant, she sent David a message saying, I'm pregnant. Then David sent word to Joab, this is her husband. Oh no, this is the commander. Send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent him to David. When Uriah arrived, David asked him how Joab and the army were getting along and how the war was progressing. Then he told Uriah, go home and relax. David even sent a gift to Uriah after he had left the palace. But Uriah didn't go home. He slept that night at the palace entrance with the king's palace guard. 
When David heard that Uriah had not gone home, he summoned him and asked, What's the matter? Why didn't you go home last night after being away for so long? Uriah replied, The ark and the armies of Israel and Judah are living in tents, and Joab and my master's men are camping in the open fields. How could I go home to wine and dine and sleep with my wife? I swear that I would never do such a thing. Well, stay here today, David told him, and tomorrow you may return to the army. So Uriah stayed in Jerusalem that day and the next. Then David invited him to dinner, got him drunk. But even then, he couldn't get Uriah to go home with his wife. And again, he slept at the palace entrance with the king's palace guard. The story goes on. It gets worse. It's a terrible story. And it's, uh, it's something that we have to be very clear about. This is the part I want to be clear about today. David raped Bathsheba. That's the honest, awful truth of this story. And I have to say it that clearly because over time in, in, in reading some of the commentaries and looking at some of the ways that this story is treated in the media of, of past movies and things like that, often the blame is switched to Bathsheba. It's, it's horrifying to see what we've done with this story sometimes. Christine and I were watching the classic 1951 movie. We we're doing some research for the sermon, and I got Christine to watch it with me. And the movie is called David and Bathsheba, and it stars Gregory Peck and Susan Hayward. Some of you remember those names, will know them. I mean, who could resist Gregory Peck, right? But the story is strange. And there's one scene in which Gregory Peck, as, as King David, he goes out on his balcony. He's looking around after just having a fight with his first wife. He goes looking around. He spots Bathsheba having a bath, right? And he sends for her. And so far, that's sort of close to what the Bible says. But then they bring in Bathsheba, and they start to have a conversation. And in the conversation in the movie, Bathsheba confesses that she is actually David's stalker. What? And suddenly Bathsheba has been stalking David, making note of the times when he's going onto the balcony. And then it becomes apparent that she intentionally disrobed and had a bath when she knew that he would be up there. And David is shocked. But how can he resist when a woman this beautiful has laid herself before him? And so they have an affair. That's the story. It's not biblical. It's actually kind of gross what they do with the story and how they shift the blame to Bathsheba. I think we still do stuff like that today. Sometimes when we hear about an awful rape that has happened and it's in the court case and, and uh, the, it'll go through the court system and be reported in the media, and then you get that one guy that says, but look at what she was wearing, right? We still shift the blame, as if how can men resist? They have these urges. Kings will be kings after all, and do what men do. Thankfully, that's not in the Bible. Thankfully, in the biblical narrative, David doesn't get away with it. It's really not adultery. It's really not an affair. There's no consent given in any of this on, on Bathsheba's behalf. David takes all the action. Did you notice that? 
He looks, he sends for, he lays with, eventually he murders her husband, and then he takes her as a wife. All the action comes from David. Bathsheba has no agency. She almost has no voice. But here's an important part. In all of the narrative, in all of scripture, she is never shamed or blamed for her actions. She is the innocent one in all of this. David actually takes the blame. And as we work through the story, and I encourage you to go home and read it, because what happens next is amazing and fascinating. Uh, David takes the blame. There's, there's no passing the buck. There's no saying kings will be kings. Or David, oh, he's such a scoundrel, isn't he? There's none of that. David takes the blame. Right at the beginning of the passage, the narrator is setting us up to really dislike David. He's lazy. He's taking his time while all his men are fighting the battles for him. And all through the narrative, we begin to despise David more and more, don't we? Until we come to this part. And then the narrator makes a very important contrast between David and who? Uriah, the Hittite. And over and over again, the passage says that he's the Hittite. This means he's like a foreign person who's been brought in to fight on behalf of Israel. And once again in the narrative, just like in, in Ruth's story and other stories, it's the outsider that teaches the person that should know better how to live a godly life. And that's what Uriah does. He's a man of honor. He won't go and sleep with his wife for a lot of reasons. He won't go and sleep with his wife because his fellow uh, man is out fighting, but also because he wouldn't be able to return to the battle because he would be impure after having sex with his wife. He's an honorable man, and he's a contrast to David. Right at the end of the passage, if we're to keep reading, we read this line. But the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. David doesn't get away with it. He doesn't get a pass. No one is shifting the blame in the biblical narrative. So here's my question. Where is God at work in this awful story? Do you ever wonder that even as we watch the news sometimes and we see just the awful reality of the human condition that's displayed for us over and over again? And we wonder maybe in our own lives, where is God at work in this awful story? I wanna bring to you just a reflection, three points of redemption that I think are happening in the story. First of all, if we were to read the story through we'd find out that David repents. David's repentance is a small point of redemption. I say a small point because I'm not sure he actually changed his behavior. This is not the first wife he's taken from another man. David seemed to have a pattern of behavior along these lines, but there is a point of redemption. In fact, as you read through, Bathsheba is pregnant, but her child dies, right? And while that child is sick, what does David do? He's lying on the floor, begging God to intervene. And just for a moment, he gets a taste of what it's like to be powerless, just like Bathsheba was powerless in his presence. And so David is confronted with this. But then we find Psalm 51. And if you've ever read Psalm 51, that's David's confession. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And he begs God, restore to me the joy of your salvation. And so there's a little bit 
of redemption here because David repents. But here's the important part of this, I think. David, I believe, is forgiven, but his sin is never forgotten. That's why in the New Testament in Matthew, we still refer to Bathsheba as Uriah's wife. It wasn't David's wife. It's Uriah's wife. David is always reminded of his sin. Everybody is reminded of David's sin. So even though we are forgiven of our sins, we still face the consequences. And those sins are not forgotten. And especially for people who are exiting abusive relationships or they've been hurt very deeply, forgiveness is an important part of healing. Forgetting is not part of the equation. And that's what we find here. So there's a point of redemption around David's repentance. There's a second point of redemption, though, and we didn't read this part of the story, but it's around the prophet Nathan and Nathan's advocacy. And this is my favorite part of the story. And, oh, I'm so tempted to read it, but read it at home. It's a little long, so I won't take the time right now. But Nathan is a prophet, and he actually confronts David by telling him a story, a parable, and I just love it. Nathan's putting his life on the line. He realizes that Bathsheba has no voice, but he is willing to stand and use his position of power and privilege in order to give a voice for the vulnerable. Be like Nathan, right? That's the moral of the story for all of us who are in positions of power and privilege. To be like Nathan, to be an advocate for those who are vulnerable. What does Nathan do? Some of you know the story. He goes to David, who, remember, was a shepherd. He says, King David, I have something to tell you. There was this man, a poor man, and they had one little lamb. And read the story, it's amazing. This, this little lamb was like a family pet. It wasn't like, you know, the sheep in the, in the field. They, they took this little lamb in and they, they fed it from their table and it slept in their bed at night. And, and this little lamb probably had a name. And then one day, a very rich landowner had some guests come over. He had lots of sheep, but he decided to take the poor man's lamb and slaughter it to serve his guests. David is enraged. Suddenly, he's going to be the man of justice. And he says to Nathan, who is this man? And Nathan says, you're the man. Oh, I love it. Isn't it just great? I mean, he just nails them. Nathan's advocacy, speaking truth to power. Nathan took great risk, I think, in doing that. But Nathan was an advocate. And I think we find some redemption in that. That in these stories, God is not letting David get off lightly with his sin. He sends Nathan to confront him. And in that confrontation, we really are reaffirmed of Bathsheba's innocence, right? In all of this. It's all about power. This wasn't even about sex for David. This is all about power and about a betrayal of trust and David's abuse of power. And we see that. Nathan actually stands with Bathsheba all the way to the end. And that brings us to our third point of redemption, and that is this. We've seen David's repentance, Nathan's advocacy, but the third point of redemption is really this, Bathsheba's victory. In the end, Bathsheba has the final voice. Not in the story that we read, you have to go forward uh, to 1 Kings chapter 1. And in 1 Kings uh, chapter 1, we see a very interesting and equally disturbing scene. 
as we do often throughout the Old Testament. But in this scene, David is now old and cold. You ever feel that way as you get older, you get colder? Uh, David was old and cold, and he's in his bed, and he is powerless. And uh, they need to warm him up. So what do they do? They find him a good young virgin. I'm not kidding. Read the story at home. And this young virgin comes in, and she basically is a hot water bottle to David. But he is not stirred. He's impotent. Now this great King David, with all his exploits, all his power, now he's the powerless one, and Bathsheba comes in because what's happening as David lays powerless, there's another man who set himself up as king, but it's not Solomon, and it's supposed to be Solomon. That's Bathsheba and David's son. And so Bathsheba comes in, and now she has the power while David lays powerless. And with Nathan's help, with Nathan by her side, she holds David's feet to the fire. <laughs> and she says, you made a promise, a pledge to me, that Solomon, my son, would be king. And David has to bend to the power of Bathsheba's will in that sense. And in the end, Bathsheba is victorious. It's a point of redemption for us, that she has a voice in the end, a power, and that David is put in his place. In fact, if we turn to Proverbs chapter 31, which I'm going to do right now, we might actually have more of Bathsheba's voice. Proverbs chapter 31 starts with this. The sayings of King Lemuel contain this message which his mother taught him. People have wondered, who is this King Lemuel? We can't really trace it in history. But a lot of the uh, rabbis and ancient rabbis taught that this was a nickname for Solomon. If that's the case, then when it says the sayings of King Lemuel uh, contain this message which his mother taught him, then these are the words of Bathsheba. Listen to what then she taught her son Solomon. She says, O my son, O son of my womb, O son of my vows, do not waste your strength on women, <laughs> on those who ruin kings. It's not for kings, O Lemuel, to guzzle wine. Rulers should not crave alcohol. For if they drink, they may forget the law and not give justice to the oppressed. Alcohol is for the dying and wine for those in bitter distress. Let them drink and forget their poverty and remember their troubles no more. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. Ensure justice for those who are being crushed. Yes, speak up for the poor and the helpless and see that they get justice. If that's Bathsheba's words, Basically, she's saying to her son, Solomon, don't be like your daddy. Don't be like your father, David, who went chasing after a wine woman in song and forgot about the poor and forgot about justice. And so perhaps in the end, we have a message for us today from Bathsheba, and she still has a voice. Well, today we remember Bathsheba as Uriah's wife, and I think we do so to remind us of David's lust and where it led and the abuse of power that he displayed. But it also reminds us of God's love, doesn't it? Reminds us of God's great love in bringing forgiveness even to David. And if David can be forgiven, then there's hope for all of us because of God's great love. But also God's great love in restoring a power and a voice to the vulnerable 
And that's what we hold on to as well. You know, when Jesus, the son of David, as Matthew calls him, hung on the cross, he stood there on the cross in solidarity with all those who have been a victim of injustice. But at the same time, and this is remarkable for us, at the same time, Jesus extended forgiveness to all those who were his abusers. And so we have this standing in solidarity with those who are vulnerable, and at the same time, forgiveness for those who have been abusers. And we find this remarkable love of God displayed for us in Jesus. And that's what the story of Bathsheba leads us to, to trust in this love that God has shown for us. This is the mystery and the power of God's love that we find in this Advent story. Let's pray together. Father, we're so grateful that as you preserved your word for us, that over time it wasn't cleaned up to sound good or sound nice. We thank you for the, for the reality of the brokenness that we find in it, because without that, we'd never know your grace and your love. As we think of the story of Bathsheba, we thank you that she did find her voice in the end, and that through her and through Solomon came your son, Jesus. Father, we pray today for those in this congregation, for those in our community who are dealing with uh, sexual violence in particular, abuse, neglect, those who feel powerless and don't have a voice, those who are vulnerable. Father, help us to pay attention. Help us to be advocates. Help us to elevate and make room for their voices so that together we might know your grace, your forgiveness, and the power of your love. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.